Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dwyer and this is Guernica and the War in the North, Partisans Part 6. Partisans, which looks at Irish stories from the Spanish Civil War, was created by myself and Stuart Redden. This podcast will see the war change gear and intensify. As we saw in the last episode, Franco had failed in several attempts to take the city of Madrid, and now he will switch the focus of his attack to the anti-fascist zone along the north coast. This will prove to be a very decisive and harrowing phase of the war. While the Blue Shirts and the International Brigades had no direct involvement, this podcast follows the story of the Dubliner Jack Prendergast, the only known Irish person to fight in this theatre of war. We will also look at how what was known as the War in the North had an impact in Ireland and the wider world. It witnessed the most notorious war crime prior to the Second World War, the bombing of Guernica, an event that had far-reaching consequences Indeed, it changed the very nature of warfare itself. Now, this episode was researched by Stuart Redden and also relies on additional research by Enda McGarry, Sam McGrath and Aoife Francis. The research and writing to create the podcast series Partisans was funded by listeners of the series who have become patrons. While they support projects like Partisans, they also get bonus features like extra podcasts and early access to the show. For example, patrons already have access to the next episode in the series Partisans Now. You can find out more about that and how you can support the show at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. You can also support the show at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. There are lots of new items being added each week to the shop, so it's well worth checking out. That's irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. At the moment, there are flags associated with the Spanish Civil War and the Irish revolutionaries who fought there. That's all available at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. Now to the story of Jack Prendergast and the war in the north. What motivated the Dubliner Jack Prendergast to risk his life in the Spanish Civil War was never entirely clear. It was a baffling decision in some ways, but logical in others. Prendergast was unlike any other Irish volunteer who fought in the Spanish Civil War. While he did fight for the anti-fascists, 
he appears to have held fascism and communism in equal disdain. He didn't travel to Spain with Frank Ryan and the Irish socialists in the international brigades and was keen to distance himself from them. Prendergast had instead travelled alone to the Basque country, a small region along the north coast that had been subjugated by the Spanish centuries earlier. It was there, alongside the fiercely independent Basques, that he would make his stand. However, while Prendergast was the only known Irish person to fight for the Basques, it is somewhat surprising, given they were what might be called a more natural fit for Irish anti-fascists in the 1930s. Basque history was in many ways similar to that of Ireland, in that the two peoples had a long history of struggling for independence. Further to this, the Basques were, by and large, devout Catholics as well, who, like Irish people, had been appalled by the anti-clerical violence that had been a feature of the anti-fascist movement elsewhere in Spain. Indeed, the opposition of the Basque Nationalist Party, the PNV, to fascism was not rooted in socialism or anarchism, but instead a desire for independence. They were in many ways reminiscent of the Irish political movement of the early 20th century that had achieved independence. Nevertheless, in spite of these similarities, Jack Prendergast was alone in taking the decision to support their struggle. While it's impossible to know for certain why he took this fateful step, we can only assume he was inspired by the Basque priest, Father Ramon Laborda, who toured Ireland in early 1937. As we've seen in previous episodes, after the wider Spanish Civil War had begun, anti-fascists in Ireland had struggled to build any support among the wider Irish public. The Catholic Church had condemned the anti-fascists and that was enough for most people. Nothing eyewitnesses like Padre O'Donnell could say or do would challenge this. In light of this, Irish anti-fascists had devised a plan to get a priest from the Basque country, where the clergy were explicitly anti-fascist, to tour Ireland. They hoped this perspective on the war would appeal to Irish public opinion. To this end, George Gilmore, a prominent Irish Republican, had travelled to the Basque country and met with nationalist leaders from the PNV, and it was agreed a priest for the Ramon Laborda would come to Ireland. By January, the priest had arrived and immediately started a speaking tour, addressing public meetings across the country. He often spoke alongside Padre O'Donnell in deeply emotive events. Laborda's English was poor, so he would often have a prepared speech read out by someone else, or, if there was an interpreter available, he would speak himself. Then, to close the meetings, he would sing Basque songs. The entire atmosphere was only heightened by the frequent presence of police to stop right-wing activists disrupting the meetings. One of Laborda's first events took place on January the 17th in the Gaiety Theatre in Dublin, and this was, in all likelihood, the event that changed the life of the Dubliner, Jack Prendergast, and led him to war. However, like all volunteers... He had little idea what lay ahead of him. Jack Prendergast arrived in the Basque country just as the war there was intensifying. In the summer of 1936, the Basques had defeated the attempted fascist coup d'etat across most of the region. However, they found themselves geographically isolated from their allies in Madrid and Barcelona. The Basque country, along with the neighbouring Spanish provinces of Cantabria and Asturias, were surrounded by a huge swathe of territory that had been seized by the fascists, and through the autumn of 1936 their position had only deteriorated. The important Basque cities of San Sebastian and Irún had fallen in the autumn of 1936, which denied them the key supply lines along the French border. 
by the time Jack Prendergast arrived, probably in the early months of 1937, the situation was increasingly ominous. General Franco was preparing to unleash the full force of his growing military power on the region. After his failure to take Madrid in several attempts between October 1936 and February 1937, he had conceded that a new strategy was needed. While skirmishes would continue around the capital, he focused all his energy, men and material on the anti-fascist zone in the north, stretching from the Basque country to Asturias. It was surrounded by the fascists on the landward side, where the partial blockade at sea made resupply very difficult. For Franco, it was a valuable prize. Symbolically, it would represent his first major victory, but also the mines of Asturias and the industrial centre of Bilbao were of huge value. Most importantly, if he defeated the anti-fascists in the region, he could use the men and material tied down there for campaigns elsewhere. On the flip side, the costs of defeat for both sides in the coming war were enormous. For the Basques, they knew severe repression awaited them. The fascists would suppress their culture, their language, their way of life. If Franco failed again, as he had before Madrid, questions would undoubtedly start to emerge over his ability to win the war. Furthermore, the longer the war dragged on, the more international events could play a decisive role. Tensions that would lead to the Second World War were already building in Europe and a war between France and Germany seemed very possible at the time. France had stayed out of any direct involvement in the Spanish Civil War so far, but if a wider conflict with Nazi Germany broke out, they would almost certainly support the anti-fascists in Spain. That could be a game-changer. So as they prepared for their assault on the Basque country, the fascists had one eye on the international situation. They knew they were in many respects in a race against time. When he arrived, the Dubliner, Jack Prendergast, had very little time to find his feet. A siege-like mentality was already gripping the region. Through early 1937, the Basques continued desperate preparations in the advance of the gathering storm. While the siege of Madrid reached a stalemate, they hurriedly built what was known as the Iron Ring, a 50-kilometre fortified line around the Basque capital of Bilbao. Life in the region was already growing increasingly difficult. The Basque country had long been dependent on imports of food, which was now increasingly scarce. Diversity in their diet disappeared as chickpeas imported from Mexico became the staple food source. Prendergast did what he could to adapt to life in the Basque country. In accordance with local traditions where people used both maternal and paternal names, he changed his name to Jack Sullivan de Prendergast. He was assigned to fight with the Irinitsi Battalion, a motorised anti-tank unit. However, through March 1937, he could do little but watch the fascists continue to build up their forces. At the end of the month, they were finally ready. Alongside Spanish troops, Adolf Hitler's Condor Legion and Benito Mussolini's Italian fascists were deployed to fight in this War of the North. While small amounts of military equipment did make it through from the Soviet Union to the Basques through the port of Bilbao, the overall situation was unquestionably grave. It seemed less and less likely that the Basque country could become another Madrid and withstand the onslaught. However, few could have imagined what was about to be unleashed on the Basque people. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Recently, I had a minor argument with a close friend that brought up things from my past that I really needed to get off my chest. I think we've all been there. Now, I found therapy a really great way to work through these issues. For me, I really like online therapy, and BetterHelp is a really great online service that allows you to make space for therapy no matter how busy you are. BetterHelp is convenient, affordable, and gives you the support you need, but also works around your schedule. It's really easy to get up and running with a therapist on BetterHelp. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do your sessions by text, phone, or video call, whichever suits you best. It's all about flexibility, working around your schedule. At the moment, BetterHelp are offering listeners to the show 10% off their first month. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash irishhistory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash irishhistory. That this campaign, known as the War in the North, was going to be different was clear from the moment it began on March 31st, 1937. On that day, the Nazis' Condor Legion bombed the Basque town of Durango, while the Italians hit Elorio, directly attacking civilian populations. The human cost was predictable. The attack on Durango was particularly intense and resulted in the deaths of over 300 people. Two Catholic churches were destroyed, several nuns and a priest saying mass was also killed. In what would become a common tactic, the fascists immediately denied any involvement, claiming Our planes bombed military objectives in Durango, and later communists and socialists locked up priests and nuns, shooting without pity and burning the churches. The world at large paid little attention. Madrid had, after all, been pounded from the air for months. However, this was the start of something different, which would only become apparent as the campaign escalated. Over the following three weeks, the war in the north ground on. The advance was slow for the first two weeks, with the fascist general Mola's characteristic hesitancy compounded by heavy rain. But there was no question, the anti-fascists were struggling in the face of overwhelming air power and the carless roquetes being used as assault troops. While Jack Prendergast was initially far behind the lines, his unit was stationed around Bilbao, it was increasingly clear the fascists would reach the Iron Ring around the Basque capital. However, long before they reached the city defence works on April 25th, 1937, the fascists terrified the population and even the army by events in the town of Guernica. 
This would be one of the most enduring attacks in the entire war, and it's worth looking at in detail. Late in the afternoon on April 25th, 1937, a single bomber from the Nazi Condor Legion flew over the Basque town of Guernica, about 25 kilometres east of Bilbao. It dropped its load of bombs on the town and then disappeared. On the ground, the people fled into cellars, which had been assigned as air raid shelters, only to emerge a few minutes later. The damage was relatively minor compared to what had happened at Durango a few weeks earlier. However, shortly afterwards, an entire squadron appeared and began to pulverise the town. Realising that the cellars would collapse under the weight of the bombing, people fled to the fields around the town. However, as this was happening, fighter planes appeared and began strafing the men, women and children, along with farm animals in the fields. Horrifying as this was, it was only the beginning. The largest bombers in the Condor Legion, the Junkers 52, appeared on the horizon and began to bomb Guernica in relay, uninterrupted, for two hours. Along with incendiary devices which burned buildings, the Condor Legion also dropped white phosphorus, a chemical weapon. The level of destruction was catastrophic. The British ambassador in Spain received the following report from a consul in the Basque country. I went at once to have a look at the place, and to my amazement found that the township normally of some 5,000 inhabitants, since the September influx of refugees about 10,000, was almost completely destroyed. Nine houses in ten are beyond reconstruction. Many were still burning and fresh fires were breaking out here and there, the result of incendiary bombs which, owing to some fault, had not exploded on the impact the day before and were doing so at the time of my visit under falling beams and masonry. The death toll was enormous, ranging somewhere from 300 to over 1,000. However, debates over the precise number of casualties which persist into the present day are besides the point in many ways. There is no question that the fascists had slaughtered far more people when they took the city of Seville, for example, but it was how they had massacred the people of Guernica which made this a unique and terrifying portent for the future. It was obvious the Condor Legion had followed a very specific plan. The bombing had not been random targeting. It was instead a test run of a new strategy the Condor Legion had been working on, carpet bombing, where the bombers used a very specific flight path, destroying everything that lay beneath them. While this would have an enduring legacy and symbolise the horrors of war for decades, the precise events in Guernica, as they were understood in 1937, would prove very important, as this specific incident would have a huge impact on the war and how it was understood in the crucial arena of world opinion. The fascists immediately issued what was becoming a standard denial when they committed war crimes. They claimed, We wish to tell the world loudly and clearly a little bit about the burning of Guernica. Guernica was destroyed by fire and gasoline. The Red Hordes burnt it to ruins. José Antonio Aguirre, the president of the Basque government, contradicted this. Before God and history, which judge us all, I swear that for three and a half hours German planes bombed, the defenceless civil population of the historical town of Guernica, reducing it to ashes, chasing with machine gun fire women and children who have died in great numbers, with the rest fleeing in terror. While the truth of what happened could have been lost in what neutrals would have seen as a propaganda war, Guernica proved to be very different. International journalists based in Bilbao on hearing about the bombing travelled to the town and it was obvious to them who was telling the truth. The South African journalist George Steer wrote one of the most vivid accounts with incontrovertible evidence. I have spoken with hundreds of homeless and distressed people who all give precisely the same description of the events. 
I have seen and measured the enormous bomb holes at Guernica, which, since I passed through the town the day before, I can testify, were not there then. Unexploded German aluminium incendiary bombs were found in Guernica marked Rheindorf Factory 1936. The reaction across the world is hard to understate. People were outraged. Even though the wider campaign was going well for the fascists, the ramifications of Guernica were enormous. Up until this point, they had also been winning the battle for world opinion. They had strictly controlled news emerging from areas under their control. However, Guernica changed this. The fascists had committed one of their worst atrocities in an anti-fascist zone for all the world to see. In the aftermath of Guernica, world opinion began to shift in favour of the anti-fascist cause in Spain. Even in Ireland, cracks began to appear in what had been rock-solid support for General Franco. Reputable newspapers could not ignore what had happened. The Irish Times and the Irish Press gave the attack widespread coverage. On April the 28th, the Irish Press front page proclaimed 800 killed in history's biggest air raid. It was hard to square this with the line the Catholic Church in particular had pushed that the fascists were doing God's work. The Basques, after all, were devout Catholics. Across the world, the outrage found expression in many forms, perhaps most famously in Pablo Picasso's painting, Guernica. He started it on hearing what had happened and finished it just over a month later, in time for it to be displayed at the Paris International Exposition. There it received widespread acclaim. Aside from the inhumanity of what they had done, this had the potential to be a decisive moment in the war, given world opinion was becoming more and more important. Support for the beleaguered anti-fascist cause now soared, perhaps most importantly in the USA, where support for Franco, even among Catholics, was only around 30 or 40%. In most countries, however, whether this could be translated into government action still remained to be seen. Most administrations were desperate to avoid being dragged into a war that could trigger a second world war. However, Guernica certainly nudged some at least to being favourably disposed to the anti-fascist side. For Jack Prendergast fighting alongside the Basques, the fact Guernica might swing world opinion against Franco was of little consolation. It increasingly looked likely that even if there was international intervention, it would be too late for him, as he faced the fascist war machine now bearing down on Bilbao. However, in that fateful summer, a distant hope emerged. Desperate to keep the Basques in the war, the anti-fascist government, then based in Valencia, launched two offensives, one at Huesca to the southeast and another at Segovia, close to Madrid, in the summer of 1937. These were major operations involving considerable amounts of men and material in an attempt to draw the fascists' attention away from the Basque country. The two attacks followed a similar trajectory, as both enjoyed initial advances before stalling in the face of major counter-offensives. Ultimately, both failed. The anarchists suffered several thousand casualties at Huesca, the international brigades sustaining horrific losses at Segovia, and the war in the north now ground on. The Basque capital of Bilbao was in very grave danger. Jack Prendergast and the Irinitsi battalion now joined in the defence of the city, pulling back inside the so-called Iron Ring, the major defensive position where they planned to make their stand. However, the fortification was something of a false hope. Even though it had only been built since the start of the war, its design was outdated, incomplete and dubbed a fantasy by the President of the Spanish Republic, Manuel Adzana, who knew he was about to lose an important ally. 
The situation, however, was even more grave than Adzana could have imagined, given the commander in charge of the fortification, Major Goikechea, defected to the fascists with plans, allowing them to target the weakest part of the line. When the assault began, the Iron Ring held out a matter of days before the fascists smashed through it in mid-June. By June the 16th, an order was given to evacuate Bilbao. This was a major blow to the Basques, whose future in the war could now be measured in weeks or maybe months at most. The ramifications for the entire anti-fascist cause were huge. While they were about to lose a key ally, Bilbao was also the first major city to fall to the fascists. After Madrid and Barcelona, it was symbolically the most important. In the world of Realpolitik, governments would base their decisions on events like this. Even if increasing numbers thought the anti-fascists were in the right, Franco had taken a huge step towards victory. It was no surprise that the fall of Bilbao was cause for great celebration in Salamanca, where the fascist high command was based. Alexander McCabe, the Irish priest resident in the city, recorded the moment when news of the fall of Bilbao reached Salamanca. While soldiers went wild in the streets, McCabe, always an astute observer, noted a Basque couple in the cafe where he sat. A gentleman and his wife sat at an adjoining table. They may be Basque. They were both very silent and sad, and the lady's face was almost entirely full of tears. This reflected the attitude of most Basques. The fall of their capital prompted one of the first major exoduses of refugees since the war had begun. Indeed, since the attack on Guernica in late April, Basques had started to leave their homeland, some of whom would eventually make their way to Ireland. These had included Marguerite Galastegui, who fled Bilbao with her five children, leaving her husband, Ellie, behind. As she boarded the steamship Habana in Bilbao, she knew she might never see her husband or her homeland again. There was no question about what awaited Ellie if he fell into the hands of the fascists. Given he was a prominent Basque nationalist who had already spent time in exile, he would have been executed. The Habana took Marguerite to the French port of Bordeaux, where she spent anxious weeks reading of the fascist advance. However, a few days before Bilbao fell, Ellie managed to escape, making his way to France, where he was reunited with Marguerite and their family. The Galisteggis were unlike many Basque refugees in that they had some hope or at least a plan. Ellie had long been inspired by the 1916 Rising and as a younger man had developed connections with Ireland. In 1933 he had established the Irish-Iberian Trading Company with the Dublin Republican Ambrose Martin and this offered him somewhere he and his family could relocate to until the fortunes of the Basque people had changed. Therefore, in September 1937, the Galisteggis moved to Ireland, where they set up home in a Gwaeltucht in Gibbstown, County Meath. There they would raise their family as Irish speakers and all became Irish citizens. Back in the Basque country, the situation was extremely bleak after the fall of Bilbao. However, the anti-fascists had one last throw of the dice. If the war in the north could be dragged into the winter of 1937, the anti-fascist militias would be able to survive in the region as winter snows would bring the fascist advance in the mountainous terrain to a halt. With this in mind, another major offensive was planned, this time to the west of Madrid at Brunete, in the hope they could force Franco to halt the war in the north for at least a few months. This would see the Irish International Brigades called into action yet again. Since the fascist onslaught in the north against the Basques had begun, plans had been put in place for a major offensive to the west of Madrid. While it was hoped this would alleviate pressure on the Basques, it also had value and strategic goals of its own. 
The aim was to attack Franco's position to the west of the city, where large numbers of fascist forces were in something of a bulge along the line. If successful, the anti-fascists were hoping they might even be able to encircle these troops. There was good reason to be optimistic in advance of this attack. Large quantities of Russian military aid were available and the army was comparatively well trained. The battle started on July 6, 1937 at the height of the Spanish summer when temperatures can get into the mid-30s around Brunetti. Again, the Irish international volunteers were in the thick of the fighting and while casualties were not as heavy as they had been at Harama, seven more people were killed in the first week alone. Unbeknownst to them, another Irishman, John Madden from Ross Cray, was fighting for the fascists in the Spanish Foreign Legion at Brunetti. He had arrived in Spain in March 1937 as Ono Duffy's Irish Brigade was on the verge of collapse but had remained on after they left. While the anti-fascists made initial advances, the Battle of Brunetti began to follow what was becoming an established pattern. The attack slowly ground to a halt and then was forced back in a counter-attack. By the end of the battle, on July the 25th, the anti-fascists had only advanced a few kilometres from their start lines. While both sides would claim victory, it was in reality a serious blow to the anti-fascists. They had suffered appalling losses. Indeed, it has been argued that the international brigades never fully recovered from the Battle of Brunetti. There was evidence to suggest they were increasingly fought out. Perhaps what was even more concerning was the fact that the anti-fascists had been fighting from a position of strength, using Russian equipment against an army engaged on two fronts. It really begged the question, if they could not win there, in those conditions, where could they win? After this, the situation just went from bad to worse. The Irishman Jack Prendergast, now promoted to the status of captain, had withdrawn with his unit northwestwards from Bilbao late in that summer. There was only one route they could take, though, towards defeat. Moving up the coast along the shores of the Bay of Biscay, they were trapped with really nowhere to go. For Basques in particular, it was surely an emotional moment when they crossed out of their homeland and into Cantabria, which also remained under anti-fascist control, but was under severe attack. Prendergast and the Irinitsi Battalion made it as far as the port of Santona Laredo, where they eventually surrendered on August the 26th, 1937. A few days later, the last major port in the north, Santander, fell. While it would take another five weeks to reduce the remaining anti-fascist areas in the neighbouring region of Asturias, the war in the north came to an end in mid-October and had been disastrous for the anti-fascists. They had suffered a crushing defeat, although for the Irishman, Jack Prendergast, he now faced what was arguably the most dangerous period of the entire conflict. Having been taken prisoner at Santona Laredo with the rest of his unit, he would see firsthand how Franco's soldiers treated prisoners. The Irish authorities were deeply concerned about him, knowing that if it emerged he was a captain, he might well be executed. He was eventually tried with 46 others in Laredo on October the 18th, 1937. Nearly half of those on trial, 21 of the 46, were sentenced to death and executed. But luckily, Jack Prendergast was not among them. Undoubtedly, aided by the intercession of Leopold Kearney, the Irish ambassador in Spain, he was driven to the French border and expelled as an undesirable alien. The entire summer had been alarming for the anti-fascists and it was deeply worrying for the future. Following on from his victory, Franco would now be able to bring all the forces, including the terrifying Nazi Condor Legion that had been tied up in the north, to fight in other regions. 
There was a glimmer of hope in the fact that international opinion had decisively changed after Guernica. However, major question marks over the ability of the anti-fascists to actually win the war had emerged in that summer, given they had failed in all their offensives. This was compounded by major internal problems, which will come to the fore in the next episode. Before concluding, though, we must return to the story of Jack Prendergast when he returned to Ireland. Initially, he seemed to return to some sense of normality and enrolled in university. He frequently wrote to newspapers under the name Prendergast de Sullivan, giving his views on the war. However, he never truly recovered from his experiences. While he suffered from pleurisy, which he had contracted in the Basque country, he developed severe mental health issues as well. These had devastating consequences. In April 1942, while walking with his 19-year-old girlfriend, Una Ennis, Prendergast first shot her dead before taking his own life by suicide. In the next episode, we will move south to Barcelona, looking at the story of the Irish woman, Hannah Ormsby. We will also check back in with Frank Ryan and the International Brigades as crippling internal problems emerge on the anti-fascist side. What started out as idealism will turn into nightmares for some. If you want to hear this episode now, it's available for show patrons at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. Also, don't forget to check out the shop at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. Until next time, Sloan. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.